This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 15th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, which states, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading glory, the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Thank you for being here. We are um, in 1 Peter, almost done with it. If you're new, we go, my name is Sam, we go straight through books of the Bible, and we are one sermon away in addition to this one, and then we'll we'll be in the book of Acts uh, in a couple weeks, so I'm excited to do that. If you would uh, bow with me, I'm going to pray that God moves me out of the way and does what He needs to do, and I just don't wreck that. So bow with me if you will. Heavenly Father, we praise You for who You are. We come before you, Lord, not because we are worthy in ourselves, but because you have made us worthy through the blood of your Son, because you are worthy, Lord. Thank you for doing everything that we could not do so that we might commune with you, be with you in your presence, to learn from you and be loved by you and be reminded of who you are and who we are in light of that. Lord, thank you for your word. It has power. Holy Spirit, would you... Move me out of the way and do what you need to do this morning. Bring us, Father, to the place of conviction by your Spirit. Bring us to the place of comfort. Give us encouragement, instruction, whatever we might be, especially those, Father, who are here who are shepherding. Would you help us to understand what it means to be a shepherd and how to shepherd for your glory and for our joy? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, If you've been with us, as I said, we've been in 1 Peter, and up to this moment, Peter has been speaking to a bunch of churches in a large area. He's writing this letter that will be circulated and read publicly to the churches in this area, probably 10 plus churches, and they are in a time of great trial, persecution. Uh, Nero, the emperor, has recently lit the city of Rome on fire, blamed the Christians, and as a result... They have more hatred than they had before being aimed towards them. And this will lead to a great persecution uh, that is really uh, just about to start. And so Peter's encouraging these people to stand strong, encouraging some of the things uh, they have seen happen to the brothers and sisters or troubling to them, trying to give them comfort, and to really remind them to look beyond this life to the next life, to find hope in the inheritance that is guaranteed, secured by Jesus and coming at his return. And so now, though, he speaks directly to the elders. 
And we get to passages like this and we think, oh, well, this is for the pastors. I'll skip over this or it doesn't apply to me. Don't do that. We must remember that the words in this epistle were read publicly so everyone heard what was being read to the pastors and the shepherds and the elders and those who were shepherding heard it and those who were being shepherded heard it. But I think it applies even to more than just them. What we do know, though, the reason Peter does write perhaps directly to these guys in this part of the text is that those who love Jesus and confess Him publicly are going to experience great hostility. But those who lead for Jesus are certainly, and we see history show this, they face even a greater persecution. Without doubt, persecution is hard for the whole community. It strains the whole community. It, it causes them to sorrow together, to, to be emboldened together. But leaders are in the unique role as those who have to endure their own trials and they are those who have to be responsible to help others endure theirs. So they have an extra burden there. And so Peter takes a moment to shepherd the shepherds, to pastor the pastors. Now, Peter calls the leaders of these churches to a certain kind of leading, a certain way of leading. And here's what he writes in the first verse we read, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, Peter could have identified himself, could have referred to himself as many different things, he could have said, Peter, I, Peter, one of the first disciples. I, Peter, maybe the best friend of Jesus. I, Peter, the rock. I, Peter, the super apostle, as it seemed like at some point these guys were called. But instead, he instructs them as a fellow elder, a fellow witness. A brother, one who can empathize with all of their experiences, because Peter knows what it means to follow. And he knows what it means to lead. And he knows what it means to fail miserably at both. It's really important that we understand who Peter is, and really all the apostles, and dare I say, all of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. We have this vision that they had everything together and what you realize is that every single guy or girl that was chosen by God to be on his team would be the last person that we would choose. They failed often, yet God used them, yet God loved them. And Peter is one of these guys. He knows what it means to fail. Leadership in every context, whether that's a pastor or as a parent or as a coach or as some other leader in some other context, is often the most wonderful and horrible thing all at the same time. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean, right? I love it! And this is horrible at times, right? It's hard and it's joyful. It's full of all kinds of times of rejoicing and then times of regret, Times of like, man, I have so much clarity on what I'm supposed to be doing. And times that are totally confusing, I don't know what I'm doing. It's wonderful and horrible all at the same time. And 
Truth be told, Peter knows that very well because there were times where he was a great leader and a great witness, and there was times where he was a really bad one. So Peter's not this perfected leader writing to these other leaders saying, I've got this all figured out, guys. Make sure everyone else does as I have done. He's a very humbled leader, and that's what makes him a very great one. Now, even the world knows what it takes to be a great leader. So there's a book that you may be familiar with. You probably have heard of it. It was written, I think, in 2001 called um, From Good to Great. It's a book by a guy named Jim Collins, great writer, but it's a secular book, and he, he researched different companies, large companies, successful and unsuccessful companies, to determine why some of these companies rose from goodness to greatness, and while some of them went from goodness to not-so-greatness. And in his research, the author identified that, like, really what, what, what kind of governed and what kind of dictated was leadership. And he determined that there were kind of five levels of leadership that really dictated whether it was successful or whether it failed. And the level five leaders, the top leaders, the leaders that, like the CEOs that led companies that became great, they possessed something that all other leaders didn't. And it was surprising when the book came out, but it shouldn't have been, and that was humility. You think it'd be education, you think it'd be experience, you think it'd be some interesting, you know, entrepreneurial characteristic, but no, it was humility. The humble leaders were the ones that took their companies from good to great. But, truth be told, you need, didn't need to wait till 2001 to learn that. A couple thousand years ago, a guy named Jesus told his disciples who were arguing together about who was going to be awesomest in the kingdom, he told them, hey guys, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He told, like, maybe Jim Collins just ripped him off, right? He told him what, where greatness comes from. It comes from humility, and whether we're talking about Elders or leaders or parents or bosses or coaches, the key to great leadership is to humble ourselves. Now, humility is not something that comes naturally to us. And we often misunderstand what it is. It's been said that humility isn't not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. Right? It's being a servant to others, pouring yourself out for others. But our world fights against that. Our, our world, our flesh, and the enemy in different ways naturally tempts us to be about yourself, right? To pursue self-exaltation, to, to pursue self-personal you know, personal greatness, even if it's for stupid things. And we see a lot of people become great and, and known for things you're like, Really? That's greatness today, not too many for humility. But God loves us enough to help us learn humility, to help us learn self-forgetfulness. And here's the rub of it all. He often teaches us humility through our humiliation. Now, Peter's writing to these leaders, and you have to go like, 
why does he talk so much about humility? He talks about humility. Why? Well, we can't fully appreciate why he talks about this so much until we really understand the kind of humiliation that Peter himself experienced. So if you have your Bibles, I want to go to three different texts. If you'd open to Matthew chapter 16, so that's the beginning of the New Testament, in the 16th chapter, Matthew 16 is an interesting passage. I'll begin in verse 13, and Jesus is in the midst of his ministry, and at different times he would kind of talk to his disciples privately, and then he would teach publicly, and so he says in verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? Now, Peter, love Peter. And he's a real doofus, okay? And by that, I mean he's impulsive. He is the first one to speak out all the time, the first one to act. And sometimes he gets it right. So he says, hey, guys, who do you say that I am? And it says... Peter replies, Oh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, which his name means rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right? How did Peter feel that moment? Right? So guys, who do people say that I am? Oh, you're, you know, John the Baptist, you're this. Who do you, ah, you are the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. That's right, Peter. Yeah, I know. Right, guys, you didn't think that, did you? Like, he's just probably like, just proud. Feeling good. And then we keep reading. Go to verse 21. It says, from that time, so the time when this has been revealed, he said, man, God has revealed this to you. This is the truth. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. All right, so think about that. So Jesus is explicitly telling his disciples, okay, guys, I'm going to suffer a ton. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed but I'm going to raise from the dead after three days. Wow. Right? And Peter, what does he do? Peter took him aside. Imagine him on the side here like, okay guys, so I'm going to be crucified. I'm like, get over here, Jesus. What are you saying? Notice what he says. He takes him aside and he began to rebuke him. Rebuke Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. Oh, no way, Lord. This will never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. So he goes from rock to Satan in like five verses, right? Talk about humility. Like this is a guy who rebuked the Son of God telling him his plan was wrong. You ever told God his plans are wrong? Right? This is 
Peter saying it to Jesus' face. Humiliating. Humbling. Turn to Luke chapter 22. So, that's two books over. Matthew, Mark, Luke. So on the night Jesus was arrested, prior to that time, He was gathered with His disciples. This is also the time where they were arguing over who was greatest. Judas betrays Him, uh, leaves to betray Him at this point. And in verse 31 of Luke chapter 22, Peter speaks, I'm sorry, Jesus speaks directly to Peter. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Imagine being told that. Satan's asked for you by name to mess with you. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. I mean, spoiler, that prayer was not answered. Depending on how you define failure, I guess. And when you have turned again, right? So he's told Peter what's going to happen. When you've turned again, wait, aren't you praying that I won't fail? Wait, if I'm turning again, something went wrong. Like failure. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter, prideful Peter, said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I will go to prison with you. I will die for you. I will give up everything for you, Jesus. But what does Jesus say? I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. And we know that he did. Prideful Peter. The guy who rebuked the Son of God. The guy who denied Jesus publicly three times after telling the Son of God again that he was wrong about what was going to happen. Go to Galatians chapter 2. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then Galatians. So if you get to 2 Corinthians, it's the next letter. It's a letter to a church in Galatia. And it's an interesting story about Peter that we maybe sometimes forget that's in here. It's very brief. This is Paul writing to Galatia, and he is talking about, this is early on uh, when Paul was first saved, and he didn't have much credibility, but he had courage. In Galatians chapter 2, there at the church of Antioch, if you go through the book of Acts, you'll see that it shifts from the church of Jerusalem to the church of Antioch, and Antioch becomes kind of the cent- center of operations. So everyone's in Antioch, including Peter and Paul, and it says in verse 11 of chapter 2, that when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So what's happening here? So Peter, a Jew, is eating with Gentiles, and everything's fine. And when the Jews come in who believe you should be circumcised still, and kind of like he kind of steps away from the Gentiles, it's like, well, yeah, you guys have fun. I'm going to go hang out with the Jews. And what is Paul says? He says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along 
with him so that even Barnabas, his partner in the gospel, was led astray by their hypocrisy. He says, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, he stands up, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like this? You're a hypocrite, Peter, leader of the church. You are misrepresenting Jesus right now by saying these Gentiles are not as good as these Jews. This is the leader of the church. Opposed publicly by Paul. Humiliating? Absolutely. This is the guy who's supposed to have it all figured out, right? So, you take these, these moments in Peter's life. Knowing what a failure Peter was. Knowing the kind of failure he would be, you would think that Jesus would have chosen a more qualified shepherd to lead his flock. But what we see is that Peter's humiliation was turned into humility because Jesus chose him knowing his failures. It's beautiful. Let me show you. Ready? John 21. We'll go backwards to the left. John chapter 21. Yeah, we'll read our Bibles here. You should too. John 21, beginning in verse 15. This is after Jesus has already revealed Himself to the disciples at least once. And He is walking on the beach and they're out fishing and Peter sees Him or John sees Him. He's like, I think that's Jesus. He's like, what? Peter puts on his coat, jumps in the water, starts swimming because he just wants to be with Jesus. And at this point, I'm wondering, or I've wondered, does, G does Peter think Jesus knows He's denied Him? Because Jesus hasn't brought it up. So I'm wondering, like, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe, maybe like, I'll just forget that. We won't ever bring it up again. And so Jesus talks to Peter directly, beginning in verse 15. It says, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I would argue that's the men that he is also with there. He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Why, why would that grieve somebody? Because Peter picked up the clue of what Jesus was doing. And that's why he says, Lord, you know everything. You know every mistake I made. You know that I denied you three times though we haven't talked about it. You know that I'm a failure. And yet, Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. That's beautiful. And you imagine... All the humiliation Peter felt in that moment, he was humbled because his failure was not unknown, it was very known. And you wonder, why would Peter, this guy, when he starts addressing leaders, talk so much about humility? Because Peter knew humbleness. Peter knew 
that Jesus knew what he did, and he, yet he loved him, and it changed everything he did. What would it change for you if you knew that God knew your mistakes, your failures, even the ones that are yet to come and yet loves you? It would change you. It would change how you lead. It would change how you love. Jesus planned for his failure. There's the proof. Jesus plans for our failure. That doesn't give us permission to fail as much as it gives us comfort when we do. His mistakes, Peter's mistakes, Peter's weaknesses, our mistakes, our weaknesses, didn't disqualify him from leading. In fact, it prepared him to be even a better shepherd than he ever could have been. So flawed Peter gets very specific and starts to instruct other flawed shepherds. Not how to lead in humility, but how the humbled lead. Why would I say it like that? Because you can't fake humility. You can't fake humility. If you try, false humility just ends up resulting in bad shepherds and scattered sheep. But the imperfect leader says, here's how you ought lead. In verse 2 and 3, it says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. So let's break that down. Peter says, shepherd the flock and exercise oversight. So first we'll address elders and pastors because it is addressing elders and pastors, obviously in context. Elders and pastors have something to do other than just fill offices and have titles. They are called to watch over the flock, to exercise oversight. And the question is, what kind of oversight is Peter most concerned with? And if you think about shepherding, like the metaphor of shepherding, like shepherds have lots of responsibilities and some are to protect and provide different things. And there's a lot of good, but I would argue perhaps unimportant things that shepherds can concern themselves with exclusively or primarily. In other words, as we shepherd, we can lead and feed very good things that are actually not God things. Not the most important things. So, a shepherd's primary concern, an elder's primary concern, a leader's primary concern for the flock that is in their care is their spiritual growth. Their spiritual maturity. And again, you can start thinking, oh, that makes sense as an elder. What about a parent? What about a coach? What about a leader? What about all these things? Peter's written an epistle detailing what is most important for the people of the way. So what are the kinds of things he has said? Well, he has said, People are to be taught about Christ. What about Christ? Well, to begin with, your new identity in Christ. Then what after that? You need to be taught about the return of Christ. To find your hope in the return of Christ. You're to be taught to respect the Christ-ordained authorities in your life. You are called to share in the suffering of Christ. To stand in a hostile culture with Christ. It's all about Christ. 
But if you were to ask elders and pastors, what is the most important thing for you to teach? It'd be interesting to see the responses. It would be probably even more interesting to ask parents. What's the most important thing that your children should learn? What's the most important thing you should lead them in and develop them in? And if the pastor's not asking, I should say, would be a very interesting answer. Because we tend to tailor the answer toward what we think is correct. But what do we really believe? See, the role of an elder or shepherd is not to be the savior. It's not to be your therapist. It's not to be your friend. The pastor, in a very real way, is a postman because they will fail as saviors and therapists and friends at some point. But if they're pointing to the Savior and the counsel and the friend, even if the pastor is not there or the parent's not there, they will know who to look to and who to trust. Now, as I said in context, Peter is talking to pastors of churches, but in principle, this message is for all leaders and shepherds and parents and coaches and bosses, anyone who's charged with the responsibility to care for others. And you go, man, in this in this person, these people, that, what is the most important things to teach them and what am I teaching them by what I say and how I live? But he goes further. He says, shepherd the flock that is among you, which is an interesting phrase because just as there's the temptation to shepherd the wrong things, there's also the temptation to shepherd the wrong people. Peter calls leaders to concern themselves first with those who are close. So think about this. For everyone who is here, there are people, there's a person, there are ones whose spiritual development you will be held accountable for. That's a heavy responsibility. You won't be held accountable for everybody's, but there are those that you will be held accountable for. And in today's world of what I'll call podcast pastors, if we stay in the pastor world for a second, it's interesting that many pastors have seemingly made the mistake of caring for the church that is not there more than the church that is. Of trying to reach beyond those who are already in reach in their church. It's frustrating to me. My responsibility, the elder's responsibility, is to pastor the church is here, not the church is not here. And we don't control a lot of who comes into the flock and who goes. We only control, if you will, how well we shepherd while you're here. And all leaders can make that mistake, not just pastors. All leaders, whether it be parents, coaches, spouses, whatever, they can mistakenly care for someone God has not called them to more than they actually care for those He has. So we need to be clear, who is the flock that's actually among us? Who actually is those that I'm held to count for? And I believe it'd be possible that we would be much more intentional, much more diligent about caring for the flock that is among us if we remember one thing. What does verse 2 say? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's interesting how often we took put the word my in front of church and kids and family and spouse. And though we mean that intentionally and probably just you know, superficially, not a really deep way, it really isn't your spouse in the sense that it's God's gift to you, as is the church or whatever flock he has given you to care for. It's God's flock. They're God's sheep. 
Imagine someone you're giving the keys to the Ferrari. Can you take care of this for a couple years? How well you're going to take care of that? We have been given a flock to steward for a time. For a time. Our families are not ours. This church is not ours, mine. Your spouse is ultimately not yours. Some of us have been given certainly a spouse. Some of us have been given children and a family. Some of us, all of us, have been given a church family to care for. Even a neighborhood to care for. And I as a pastor and a husband and a father and leader have been trusted to care for a people that is not mine. And one day, the true owner, the chief shepherd of the flock, is going to return for what is his. And the thing that should, should motivate us and not depress us, inspire us and not discourage us, is that what condition is he going to find the gift that he has given me to care for? What's it going to be like when he arrives? We think of that parable of the ten talents, right? And we think of it as intangible, materialistic things. Well, what about the people that we've been given? So knowing that, knowing it's God's flock, knowing that, that we're flawed leaders in doing it, He calls for us, okay, this is the way to lead this flock that I've given you. And we see that Peter is more concerned about what, how they do actually the shepherding versus actually what they do. Did you catch that? He's, he's more concerned about their heart attitude and some of the things he gives them. Like, he doesn't say, like, make sure you do these programs at a church or you do this at, in your family. He actually says, whatever you do, do it this way. And it's a way to shepherd and care that is actually aligned with how Christ has cared for us. So let me prove it to you. It says that they are not to approach this role as if they have to, under compulsion. It's not a have to, but it's willingly. So again, context of elders. Elders and pastors are not to serve because it's their duty, but because it's their desire. And as elders and pastors, you like, okay, that makes sense. Let's just talk about spouses. Like, what does it feel like when a spouse is like, you know, well, I'm married to you because I have to be. I'm loving you because I have to be. It's my duty. And in some sense, you go, well, I understand it is a duty, but is that the drive? Is it just duty? Because if it's just duty and not privilege, if it's just duty and not desire, it's not going to last long. The truth is, Jesus gives us the example. Jesus gives us the motivation by how He loved us. He was the good shepherd who loved the sheep out of choice, though they were difficult to love. He is the one that loved out of desire, willingly coming, willingly serving, willingly sacrificing because he wanted to. He didn't have to. So Peter says, don't, don't approach it like you have to, willingly. Don't let someone twist your arm to lead, but have that desire. And then he says, and even if you want to, don't want to because of some shameful gain you're going to get. Because it's somehow going to benefit you. Some kind of power, prosperity, popularity, whatever it might be. Did you know pastors do that? You know, there are people who became pastors because they like the power of position. And there are many pastors who have 
not stop being pastors when they shouldn't because they need to pay their bills. It says that they are to serve eagerly without expectation of personal gain. And I'll tell you, there's, there's few things that will cause me to stop being a pastor. One of those things is that if I continue to shepherd and the primary motivation for that is to be able to pay my bills, I need to get out. Because that might not sound like shameful gain, but if that's the primary motivation, it is shameful. And there are many pastors who are in that position. I've met them. Jesus was the good shepherd. You know what he did? He did all for the glory of God. Because here's what happens when you don't do something of leadership for the glory of God. Whether that be pastoring or marriage or whatever. If the glory of God is not your motivation, then something else is, right? And what happens when that something else doesn't come to pass? What happens when you don't get that thing you've been striving for? Whether it be popularity, whether it be just you know, fun, whether it be whatever it is. If it's not for the glory of God, it's something that actually can be taken away given enough time. But the glory of God cannot be taken away. And that's what Jesus understood, right? That's how Jesus loved us. He didn't love because it brought him some personal benefit, right? He was the good shepherd who emptied himself. He stepped off his throne, emptied himself of all wealth, of all power, of all prestige, denied himself every personal benefit possible and laid his life down for his sheep. Willingly. Not because it benefited him. And then he also says that the shepherds are not to force the sheep to obey, but to be an example. Now, that doesn't mean that sheep are never disciplined, but that you understand that there's actually only one power in the universe that can change a heart. It means that trusting your example is actually more powerful than your words. Now, I've learned this as a parent in the most humbling of ways. Because when your kids are younger, it's really easy to control them. Right? You're going to do this, period. And they get a little older and suddenly they're like, I don't know if I want to do that. Right? And suddenly your words don't have the impact that they did. And if you've been wholly dependent upon your words, it's likely that it's going to be even more difficult after that. Because it's much uh, more powerful for someone to learn to encourage their siblings or to encourage their brothers and sisters to be an encouraging person by actually being encouraging yourself. If you say, be encouraging! You should be more encouraging! You should not do that! It's like coaching soccer. I used to coach soccer a lot. And I I have realized that I was a pretty bad coach. No matter how success I was, I was like a, a bad coach because I talked a lot. So imagine trying to train someone to do something just by words as opposed to showing them an example of what to do. And I did a lot of my coaching I learned, and maybe this has followed me into parenting, of telling them what not to do as opposed to showing them what they ought to do, right? And so he says, don't don't force it. Don't try to control it. 
Like, think about this. Like, why would I do that? Because that's not how God in Christ has loved you. Jesus didn't drive his sheep. He led them. It's a very different image of how we're loved. Of how we're cared for. He didn't force us. Now, as you look at that list, like for those who are sheep, that's a pretty good, bad, like elder test. Good elder bowed. Why are you doing this? Why do you continue to serve? Why do you want to serve? What benefit is it? Those types of things. And for some pastors, it probably shows us when we should quit before we become bad ones. And for other shepherds who can't quit, like parents, right? It's not like you go, that's it. This is too hard. I'm out. Although people do that, don't they? Even if they don't check out actively, they check out passively. So for those who are like, I really can't, like, I could quit tomorrow being a pastor. I really can't quit being a parent. So for those who are leading in those kind of contexts, we're like, okay, you're going to have to lead. It, it actually shows them how to endure when it's hard, and it might actually reveal why it's so hard. I mean, shepherding's hard. Why? Because sheep are mean. Sheep are stinky. Sheep are, are kind of dumb sometimes. They bite you. Now, I say that as a shepherd who's a sheep before he's a shepherd, shepherding sheep. You're like, we're all sheep. And we're all ornery. We're all difficult at different times. If you think you're not a difficult person, I'd like to talk to your spouse or your friends because you might be a little delusional. But when trials get hard, right? When, when, when the shepherding gets hard because the sheep are mean or just it's, it's just tough, it's so tempting to give up. It's tempting to quit. Whether that be a pastor, a parent, or coach. But the difference between a good and a bad leader is humility. And what I mean by that, some need to be humble enough to stop leading or to lead differently. And others, I think, must be humble enough to continue leading, especially when it's hard because of this truth. You know how hard you are to shepherd. One of the most convicting, sanctifying things in my life is parenting. And I have not had the voice of the Lord say this, but it may well be the voice of the Lord. It feels like it because He's telling me things I don't want to hear. So I'm like, that's probably the Holy Spirit. And it's when like, it's really hard shepherding your kids or shepherding members in a church. I mean, really, anywhere you're, you're shepherding and caring for people. And the Lord, and I go, man, this is hard, Lord. And He goes, yeah, welcome to my world. With you. Right? You see that especially in your kids because they act like you. They do the things that you, and you're like, man, you're horrible. And the Lord's like, yeah. <laughs> so are you. And when you get that mentality of like, okay, I'm shepherded. I'm, how am I loved by Jesus? How am I cared for by Jesus? How, how am I shepherded by Jesus? It will help you shepherd those in your care. Because you're humble enough to recognize that you're a difficult sheep too. Now, 
Peter calls for humility in shepherds. And then he calls for humility in the sheep that are led by them. Right? In the last verse here. I'm convinced that it's only when we actually recognize our own weaknesses and failures that we'll actually be able to accept the failures of others. And that goes for shepherds and sheep. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe, yourself, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now check this out. So when the fiery trial comes, because that's what's, you can imagine Pete, like why Peter would address the elders, because as things start to get bad for the community, the church, as things get bad in their lives, who do you think they'll start to blame? The leaders. How do I know that? Well, in the Old Testament, you see it all the time. Like when Moses was leading people through the Exodus, following God's instructions explicitly, following the pillar or the, or the fire, like all following it, and that something bad would happen, we have no water, we have no food, what would they do? Your leadership's horrible, Moses. We need new leaders. He's like, I'm just, I'm just doing what God told me to do. No, you're horrible. I wish we need to replace you. Even his own family were like, yeah, we're taking over. Because when things get bad, you start to go, yeah. Leaders don't know what you're doing. And that is the same in the church, in a family, in a business, even in a sports team, right? When things go bad, those responsible will rightly or wrongly be blamed for that difficult season. And these are the times when it is hardest to lead. These are the times where it's really hard to follow. So while we say that no one is perfect, I mean, no one's perfect, it seems as if we live expecting perfection from a lot of people. Expecting them from our pastors, expecting them from our leaders, expecting them from our parents. Kids, I'm talking to you, right? And then when they let us down or they do something we don't like, we feel justified in going, hmm, yeah, mm hmm, rebellion. The problem is we often wrongly place hopes reserved for Jesus in those who lead us. And we idolize those pastors and those parents and those leaders in our lives. And we set them up to fail because there's no way they can meet the expectations that Jesus meets. And so what happens is when they do fail, because you're like, what? You failed? You failed me as a spouse? You failed me as a leader? Like, I, I, What? What goes from idolization turns to demonization very quickly. And so the young here, I think, are not just the actual young, but certainly the young are those who are following. And the young, in this sense, are characterized by the I know better attitude. Isn't that what Peter thought when he condemned Jesus' crazy crucifixion resurrection plan? What are you talking about, Jesus? I know better. He didn't know better. And leaders can't lead without humility, and followers can't follow without humility. In regards to followers, we must have the humility to trust our leaders. We must have the humility to accept their imperfections. 
We must have the humility to work through differences, disappointments, and even disagreements. Humble sheep will follow humble shepherds. No one wants to lead a pride-filled flock or family or spouse or business. And no one wants to follow a pride-filled shepherd or leader. So, think about this. Whether you are an elder or spouse or parent or anyone who's leading in a context. Or whether you are a child, a young adult, a spouse, a member of a church, or anyone who's following. If in that role as leader or follower, you find yourself constantly criticizing and complaining about your leaders or about those you lead. Wondering, why haven't things changed and gone my way? Peter has a word for you. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, that's a really powerful statement. Because what it says is that not just God is disappointed by the proud. He's really grieved by the proud. He said he is actually against the proud. The proud leader or the proud follower. Leader or follower. The Lord is going to oppose anyone who acts as if they are God. And refuses to be humble as a leader or a follower. Greatness is never going to be achieved by fighting for your way or trying to exalt yourself. God is against you. Greatness is achieved according to Christ by surrendering your way so as to exalt Jesus and others. And all of us are called to do simply this. Get low and get grace. If you don't get low, you won't get grace. So the question is, how do we get low? So let me just end with this rad passage. Turn to Luke chapter 22. This might be one of my favorite verses, certainly in Luke, but it's one that you would never think to look at. Like, how do I get low? Okay, what does it look like to be humble, a humble leader, a humble follower? Consider how Peter humbly led with his failures. How do you know that he led with his failures? So the Gospel, Luke, if you don't know, is a book written by a Gentile doctor, and he was a, endeavoring to write a comprehensive kind of account of the history of Jesus of Nazareth. And he wrote the longest account, the most detailed Gospel, the most complete narrative of the birth and life and death of Jesus. And Dr. Luke, who was really a doctor, was not an eyewitness. He didn't walk with Jesus like Peter, James, and John. He didn't walk with Jesus or meet Jesus like Paul did, though he walked with Paul. So he had to seek out eyewitnesses. He had to investigate and get accounts. And it's likely that Luke sought out and sat down with Peter. And it's only in the Gospel of Luke that you have a very unique detail reported that few people would know about. As I said, 
We know that Peter denied Jesus three times. And first two times, right, it's like, hey, you were with the Galilean. No, I wasn't. Hey, I think you're what? No, I wasn't. And the third time, he gets really angry. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 60, this is the third time. It says, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And look at this next sentence. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, can you imagine that? Have you ever had the experience of looking into the eyes of someone where you're like, you know you just screwed up? And you're just torn up by it. It says Peter remembered in that moment as he's looking in Jesus' eyes, he remembered the sayings of the Lord, how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. He remembered his pride. No way. I'll go to prison. I will die with you. And it says he wept bitterly. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Only Peter knew about that moment. No one else knew that. It wasn't like John was like, oh, oh, do you see him look at it? Like, no. Only Peter knew that. And yet, clearly, he talked about it. He shared it. He told Luke to write it down so we would all remember it. His humiliating moment. Someone who rebuked Jesus and denied Jesus. And yet, Peter knew grace. And he knew he was loved by Jesus. So much so, he could take the biggest mistake that is remembered in Scripture as like, oh my God, how can you screw up more and talk about it and say, this is grace. This is undeserved, unearned, pure, radical love. The Gospel gets us low by showing us that Jesus knows and plans for our failures. But more than that, it actually shows us that His love, when we come face to face with that reality that Jesus knows it all, and He forgives us and He loves us, He actually has the power to lift us up out of our failures and use those very failures to help glorify God in others. That's what we're doing. And so that kind of love, right? The love of our shepherd the love for our shepherd is going to motivate us to love like the shepherd because we've been humbled by how he's loved us. So how you lead, however you're leading, how you lead is going to demonstrate how you love Jesus. But more importantly, how you respond to your failures and how you respond to the failures of others is actually going to reveal how you believe Jesus loves you. That's what's going to reveal. 
This is the table we come to every Sunday. It's the most important thing, though we, we tend to go through it like routine, right? Okay, we take communion now. And it is for those who understand the grace of Jesus Christ. It is those who, who, who truly come face to face like this is the, the table of, in many ways, our sin, our mistakes, our failures. And yet it's the table where we receive forgiveness where, where we come to the table and Jesus says, oh yeah, I know forgiven, covered, cleansed. We come to the table in many ways humiliated by our brokenness. There are many here that I know like, oh man, I, I, I made more mistakes than you could possibly imagine. Probably, but not more than Jesus could. And so we come to the table feeling humiliated, feeling broken, and we leave humble because He loves us so greatly. And inspired and motivated to live differently because of that. That's the gospel. We don't come to the table clean. We don't come to the table fixed. We don't come to the table strong. We come to the table broken and weak. And Jesus says, yes, now I can use you. Now I can use you. And for those who don't know Jesus, I pray, I pray we not dwell on your failures and mistakes and weaknesses because we all have them. And I know you think they're greater than possible, but we're talking about two guys. Peter, the guy who denied Jesus to his face, and Paul, the guy who killed Christians. And if Jesus can forgive them, pretty sure he's got room for you. Amen? Let's pray.